O Lord, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, always be pleasing in thy sight. For thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Why would I want to go to church and spend my morning on Sunday with a bunch of hypocrites? I'm sure you've heard that statement or variant of it at some point in your life, perhaps even recently. I've heard it from all parts, from farmers to hardworking factory workers to lawyers and doctors across the spectrum alike. It's a criticism of the church and of Christians. And let's be honest, too often it's well-deserved. Today we begin our Lenten journey together as a church, but we also begin our sermon series called Discovering the Real Jesus. We're going through in our small groups during this time, and even if you're not in a small group, I invite you to take one of these. Um, these study guides, Seven Encounters with Jesus from the Gospel of John. It's going to inform our sermon series as we go along, and we're going to look at these texts particularly in a way of examining our hearts, repenting, of course, because it's Lent, of the things that we've gotten wrong, but then also looking at how outsiders see Jesus. And how encountering the real Jesus changes us. And if we present him to them, we'll change them. For Jesus is powerful when people see him as he is and not as they think him to be. And so many people in our culture have either a Sunday school Jesus in their mind, maybe from years ago, or have a caricature of Jesus from something that our culture has drawn up for them over their many years. Many people have not encountered the real Jesus as he's found in Holy Scripture. And so we start that series today with Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Jesus meek and mild. Jesus gentle and affirming. Hmm. Jesus soft on hypocrisy? No. Today, we deal with a very real instance of Jesus confronting the hypocritical leaders of the temple. And I think today's gospel lesson speaks very practically to our culture today that sees the church and Christians as hypocrites. And so we're going to look at that together. Now, the word hypocrite is one that's thrown around loosely, right? Lots of things are hypocritical. We might call many people hypocrites. But if we dig down into the word itself, the word hypocrite has two definitions primarily, which are not unrelated. The first is a person who puts on a false appearance of virtue or religion. A person who puts on a false appearance of virtue or religion. If you were here on Ash Wednesday or have read that passage from Matthew 6, you know that Jesus is hard on the hypocrites in that passage, right? People that make a show of their faith. 
people whose hearts are on the reward earned them by appearing holy and virtuous in front of men. The second definition of hypocrisy, or of a hypocrite, rather, is a person who acts in contradiction to his or her stated beliefs or feelings. A person who acts in contradiction to his or her stated beliefs or feelings. That's kind of the messier one, isn't it? Because all of us can raise our hand and say, I'm a hypocrite, if that's the definition, without exception. All of us don't live up to some of the things we preach. This guy, first and foremost. (laughs) In Matthew 6, as we've read on Ash Wednesday, Jesus calls out hypocrites and condemns them. St. Cremodius, a scholar and bishop from northern Italy, writing in the 4th century, puts it succinctly, commenting on that passage, writing, It's not the mark of a devout mind to do any of the works of God in order to anticipate the glory of human praise. It's not the mark of a devout mind to do any of the works of God in order to anticipate the glory of human praise. In today's Gospel from John chapter 2, we see how Jesus responded to that hypocrisy in the temple. And he responds quite forcefully. He makes a whip out of cords and drives the animals and the money changers and sellers of the animals out of the temple, turning over tables. Just look at the passage with me in the Bible. Verses 15 and 16 is what I'm looking at particularly. You can find it in your bulletin, or you can open a Bible and look at it yourselves. And making a whip of cords, he, that is Jesus, drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Today people would say, perhaps, that Jesus needs some anger management. Today, perhaps, people would say that Jesus needs to control himself. And many pastors and commentators, not looking at this passage, but speaking in other areas of life, would say that he lacked charity or was not winsome. Perhaps even you think that. What's the big deal? And Jesus Jesus states in this account, as Jesus states, rather, in this account, the big deal is that they had turned God's temple into a marketplace or a house of trade, as today's translation puts it. Jesus, in in the Gospel of Mark and Luke, talking about the same event or similar event, I happen to think that it's the same event, calls them a den of robbers. A den of robbers. Bible commentator D.A. Carson and many others make the point that the reason that the money changers and the sellers were here selling sacrificial animals 
was actually initially to help people traveling along worship God. You see, foreign currencies had to be exchanged for the domestic currency, which was of pure silver. And animals had to be bought for the sacrifice. And if you were traveling all the way from, I don't know, say Syria, you, you didn't want to bring that animal with you. You could just buy it there at the site to take to be sacrificed. But apparently the market and the exchange had been moved from the valley across from the temple to the outer court or the court of the Gentiles within the temple. That's what's going on historically here. And why is that such a problem? It's more convenient, after all. Well, the reason is that they had brought this trade into the holy house of God. And we're actually keeping the court of the Gentiles folk, those people that are seeking God, those people that are inquiring about God that aren't yet Jews, because that's all the farther they could come in the temple complex, they were keeping them from worshiping God. I mean, imagine if you came into the, the back of the sanctuary here. Let's say that you, you were limiting yourself to the back, and there was all this ruckus going on here, and you were trying to sit there and pray. Would you be able to focus on the presence of God very well? No, of course not. This is one reason that during Lent we observe silence in the nave of the church, to let people come and silently approach the throne of God in order to meditate on his love and his grace, to bring their things, their sacrifices before him. They had polluted the temple and made it a place of selling. And worse than that, they'd all take a cut from it. So if you were a money tra if you were a money changer, you would change that currency exchange fee. Just a little bit off the top for you. Or you'd provide for your services. A pr you'd, you'd get a profit for providing your services of providing an animal for those who were coming to make a sacrifice. And so this had become a business as well as a distraction to people seeking God. And dear friends, what is it that many people see church as today? Hypocritical? A business? A distraction? Why is it, there's another thing that you hear when you talk to people about coming to church, and that's that they feel that they can connect to God better on their own. Now they're dead wrong. But do you see there's a, there's a parallel here in what's going on in the text at the temple. Jesus' reaction is to cleanse the temple of their presence so that God, so that they might experience God's presence. Because that's the danger that hypocrisy brings. Hypocrisy blocks people from the presence of God. It's a distraction. At the root, religious hypocrisy is actually a violation of the Ten Commandments, too. Of course it is. But it's a violation of at least four of them directly. The religious hypocrite claims to worship God, but actually worships him or her version of God. 
which of course we know from last year's sermon series on the Ten Commandments, when we don't actually worship the true, real God, we're worshiping a version of God found in ourselves. We're worshiping our version of God. And so the religious hypocrite zeroes in on other people's sins when he does that and just kind of ignores his own because those aren't the biggies, right? Those aren't the ones that are really important to God. The religious hypocrite also, therefore, blasphemes by putting his God before the one true God. That's commandment number one. And number two, for those keeping track, the religious hypocrite also uses the Lord's name in vain, putting it to use to his own purposes. For the hypocrite, if he's intentional about his hypocrisy, is also bearing false witness and using God to his own ends. Jesus is outraged with hypocrisy. Why? Number one, it mars the name of God. It's the opposite of giving God glory. Two, Jesus is concerned with what hypocrisy does to the person engaging in it, to the hypocrite. Three, Jesus is aware of the damage that hypocrisy does to the inquirer or the onlooker, blocking him or her from seeking and seeing God. All three of these, of course, are interwoven together. But let's start with marring the name of God. Now, in a sense, God can't be hurt by what we believe or disbelieve. And yet there's this idea in the scripture that God's people are to bring glory to his name. Right? And so marring his name is the very opposite of that. Marring God's name is a great act of impiety. One one purpose God creates the Old Testament Hebrews and the New Testament church is to bring glory unto himself. Consider Isaiah chapter 43, verses 6 and 7. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. Or Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. In the same way, let your light so shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven to bring him glory. Speaking of himself, that is Jesus speaking of himself, in John chapter 7, verse 18 says, The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And so if we want to be like Jesus, we want to bring the Father glory. Throughout the Bible, there's a theme of that, bringing him glory. And when a Christian engages in hypocrisy, he turns that offering of bringing glory to God on its head, bringing himself glory instead. And we must be wary of this in our own living. Be careful to think, speak, and act in accordance with God's word, particularly if you're invoking the name of God. It can happen in a myriad of ways. 
that we can mar his glory. If we lack the courage to stand up for truth in the midst of lies, when people very well know that we're Christians, that mars his glory. Or when we use the faith to advance ourselves, that mars his glory. Denying or distancing yourself from the church or other Christians who are being mocked as hypocritical, that mars his glory. A person who acts in a way that's contradictory to the faith is a hypocrite, even if it's out of his weakness. You see, whether intentional or not, hypocrisy mars the name of God. Number two, Jesus is outraged with hypocrisy because it damages the hypocrite. Jesus is outraged with hypocrisy because it damages the soul of the person who's being hypocritical. If you've ever been hypocritical, you know what I'm talking about. As long as your conscience isn't seared against it, you know what I mean. No one needs to accuse you in order to feel shame after you've been overtly hypocritical, or even privately hypocritical. Perhaps you just remind a friend, a Christian friend, about the importance of not slandering somebody in gossip, and then at the very next moment you engage in a juicy conversation with your spouse or another friend. Or perhaps you've just corrected your child about controlling his temper only to allow your own to fly out of control the very next minute. You know what I speak of. Maybe you gave a coworker a little speech on the importance of hard work and focusing and integrity, only to turn away and start scrolling through your newsfeed and cheating the people you're working for by misusing your time. When that pang hits you, You know that you've been hypocritical, and you know the conviction of God's Holy Spirit telling you so. God is outraged by hypocrisy because it hurts you. And if you continue in a life of hypocrisy, eventually you fail to love all that is good and just and beautiful, all that is of God, because in place... You've substituted a cynical way of thinking that idolizes your own goods. Finally, Jesus is aware of what hypocrisy does to the onlooker or the inquirer. How many people have you spoken to who will not come to church again, as we said at the beginning, because it's full of hypocrites? And how many more have left the church or at least backed away from the church because of the hypocrisy they've seen in it? Perhaps even in the clergy of the church or sometimes were the foremost of sinners in this. On the other side, I know plenty of former clergy who have left the ministry because of the hypocrisy of working with Christians in the church. They just can't go on. They've been eaten up, beat up. We used to have a saying in seminary, Beware of the sheep. They bite. Answering people who have been hurt by Christians in the church is multifaceted and difficult, dear friends. The charge of hypocrisy 
is a strong one because it's part truth. And we can't just dismiss it as the throwaway line that it often is either. Sometimes people are just shoving that up because they don't want to go to church, right? They say, ah, they're just a bunch of hypocrites. Sometimes people are just putting that forward because they want to end the conversation. That's not always the case. Oftentimes there's a wound or a hurt from times past that hasn't been addressed or healed. That's why this can be really difficult. And so in those situations, we have to kind of grasp what's going on when we're talking to our friends or coworkers and find out, is this person serious? Like, is, is, this, is this really something they're struggling with, or are they just putting me off when I'm asking them to come to church? We have to be gentle and probe and see. If you've been following this sermon at all, perhaps you realize that, again, there is a... The the charge is powerful because there's truth in it that you and I and all Christians engage in hypocrisy. It's part of our struggle. And so there's also a category mistake here. And that's that, yes, the church is full of hypocrites. Perhaps we need to just admit it. Could we respond that? Could we say, yeah, you're right. The church is full of hypocrites. I've been one. I'll probably be one again. But believe it or not, the Christian community is helping me become less hypocritical. Could we say that? Such a response might open a conversation with the person. Or maybe invite them to tell their story. They might just do it. How has the church hurt you? What happened? What's your experience of that? Why do you have that opinion of the church? Now, you have to do it in a way that truly invites conversation. You're not trying to win an argument with the person. But the other thing that we struggle with in our post-truth culture, our post-modern culture, is on the other side of the hypocrisy equation. And that's that for many in our culture, the answer to hypocrisy is to throw out the standard. Right? To say, well, because that's what a lot of people go after, If I don't want to be a hypocrite, I just get rid of the standard and then I'm not hypocritical anymore. Just get rid of your principles and your beliefs. Right? Which is actually the implicit thing that a lot of people are thinking when they say, I don't want to go to church and be with a bunch of hypocrites. They're thinking, I don't want to be with a bunch of people that have standards, that have principles. That's the philosophical side of it. Why does a person, however, think that going to church puts him in the presence of hypocrites. Why not work? Do you not work with a bunch of hypocrites? Why not the golf course? Have you never golfed with a cheater? Do you quit golfing forever with that person? Why not the bowling alley? Why not the Rotary Club? Why not your professional organizations? They're full of hypocrites too. Why is the church special in this? That you don't want to hang out with hypocrites there? Well, there's several answers to that, too. And the first is that the church alone calls them to something more, to something higher. And perhaps they're actually not wanting to see hypocrisy in the church is a good thing. If you ever think about that. Why is it that people are so hard on the church and on Christians? Maybe because they're looking 
for something that's different from the world deep down. And so that's not something to crush either. According to hypocrisy, however, <clears throat> is a way to ease their mind. It's a way to say, well, those church people, they're no better than me. They don't actually keep those beliefs and standards, so why should we even pretend to ascribe to them? Of course, the irony is, as I've said earlier, they're right. We are no better than them, except that we've found the place where God meets us, the place where principle and belief dwell and change us instead of us changing it. For the church is the bastion, or should be the bastion, of sanctification, of excising hypocrisy, of bringing us into the presence of God and changing us and transforming us so that we're less hypocritical. Because that's what the presence of God does. The church should be more principled, dear friends, and we need to tell the world that. When people look at the church and when people criticize us as hypocrites, we can both say, you're right, and say, we're trying to do better by the grace of God. <clears throat> the answer to the person who sees the church full of hypocrites thus is fivefold. You're right. Our congregation's full of hypocrites, including me. Come join us. Two, you're right, and that shouldn't be so. Come join us and experience the grace of God to change it. Number three, God is outraged with hypocrisy. You're right. He doesn't excuse it. What you're espousing in your criticism of hypocrisy is exactly what Jesus does in John 2. Come to this seeker's study, or let's look at John 2 together. And we can look at Jesus' reaction to hypocrisy. Number four, it's only by Jesus' grace found in the church that we can be given the grace and discipline to bring our inconsistent hypocrisy under control. And number five, God promises to fix it. Would you like to be fixed? <laughs> now look, there's no magic bullet for any conversation with folks. But you've got to at least have gone through these exercises in your mind, dear friends. Because you're going to come upon these conversations with people. These are the, the, the times that we live in. These are the people that we go to the grocery store and see, or perhaps are served in a restaurant by. Or maybe, as is my case, the nurses and the midwives in the hospital that were ministered to by. This is our world. If they think we're hypocrites, what's our response? Should we be defensive? Or should we show them Jesus? Should we say, come and see, encounter the real Christ, as I have? I hope that you'll equip yourself to do the latter. Amen. Amen.